I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. What Drives You is brought to you by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit Ziggler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Yeah. Welcome. I'm Kevin Miller. This is What Drives You, the podcast for driven people who want to reach great destinations and enjoy the ride every day. We're continuing our series here, part three on interdependence, which we began with interdependence expert and international trauma facilitator, Thomas Hubel, whose new book is titled Attuned. Practicing Interdependence to Heal Our Trauma and Our World. Well, here I continue discussion with a friend and often collaborator with Thomas, William Urey. And I often bring on past guests for this part three segment. This time, I think it's maybe the first time I'm bringing on a future guest. Uh, Bill and I spent about three hours together recently and talking about his uh, book. And he and Thomas, though, found out that they're well acquainted. They've done a lot together. But uh, to, to fill you in on William, he's one of the world's best known experts on negotiation. And he's the co-author of Getting to Yes, which you likely know about that book. It's the world's all-time best-selling book on the topic. More than 15 million copies sold. He's co-founder of Harvard's program on negotiation and has devoted his life to helping people, organizations, and nations transform conflicts around the world having served as a negotiator in many of the toughest disputes of our times. He's consulted with the White House, the State Department, the Pentagon. His upcoming book, which you can actually pre-order right now, uh, when this show publishes, it won't be officially out yet, but uh, give it a couple of weeks, but you can pre-order it now. It's titled Possible. That's what we spent a few hours talking about. Possible, how we survive and thrive in an age of conflict. We'll be digging further into that. You'll hear our series on that. But these two guys, Thomas Hubel and William Urey, are called on by countries and organizations around the globe to bring ultimately peace to relationships, whether that's a nation to nation or person to person. So, Bill, um, just a gift to have you back. My pleasure, Kevin, really. Uh, well, it's it's uh, I have spent time looking online at the stuff you and Thomas have done together. And, you know, I wanted to ask just from a context standpoint, how did you guys come together? You obviously are literally around the globe being called on to help, like I said, nations and organizations and people and whatnot. How did you come together? Well, I, we were brought together by a friend, but our first uh, really big heart-to-heart in-person conversation actually took place in Jerusalem. Oh, wow. Um, we met in Jerusalem. I was just about to go for a walk on the Abraham Path, uh, which is a long-distance walking trail to the Middle East that follows the footsteps of Abraham and his family. And uh, and we had a conversation, and it went on for an hour, two hours, three hours, four hours uh, in the American Colony Hotel there, and it just didn't stop. And... Uh, we're just talking about everything from obviously the Middle East to trauma to how as human beings we come together, how we relate to each other, uh, how we can navigate all these difficulties that we face. Yeah. And uh, and we decided out of that to continue the conversation. And uh, he invited me to co-teach with him some of his courses. That's incredible. So, t- I mean, you know, when I look at you, I mean, when we have the show coming up on you, we're really focusing 
you know, on conflict and on negotiation. Thomas, obviously, from a, you know, from a billboard standpoint, it's trauma. He gets labeled under there. But as in talking with both of you recently, obviously, and that's why you resonated so much, there's so much overlap of your focal points. Do that for me. I mean, overlap. You're, you know, both of you guys are working there, but when you take trauma and conflict, I mean, to some degree, they they are. It's a massive overlap, maybe completely to some degree. It is actually, uh, you know, it's something I've really, really appreciated more and more over time that so many of the deep rooted conflicts that I work on, be it in the Middle East or, you know, Korea or Colombia or at home, you know, in our political polarization or at home, you know, in family feuds or in yeah. business. So many conflicts, they seem to be on the surface about things, but actually underneath they're driven by unprocessed trauma that we have, you know, that really causes us to react, to get angry, to get fearful. And then we, then we're off to the races an eye for an eye and we all go blind. And so much of my work is kind of like bringing calm to the situation. So people can think about what do you really want yeah. and what's really going to advance, what's going to make you happy in this situation. When you look so tra at traumas, that, go ahead. <laughs> well, when you look at the the negotiation aspect of trying to bring people together, how much of the time do you end up dealing with the? Gosh, I was going to say. Well, you can help me unpack that. I was going to say the real and perceived trauma. That's probably not a fair statement. I mean, if it's perceived, it is real. If it's real, I, I, is that a is that a fair way to even even label it? Yeah, it's felt trauma. Really felt. Okay. Uh, it, it's, uh, it's, you know, I, I, I've really, I, I find myself, I'm still a beginner in all of this. <laughs> That's how I, I like to bring anyway, beginner's mind. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, you know, trauma is something as a subject, you know, as a real subject of core interest has really come up in the last few years. But before that, I was I always sensed that, I mean, there was so much of, Negotiation conflict is about deep-seated emotions, right? Yeah. Deep-seated emotions and con and trauma is about when we something overwhelming haps, happens to us. You know, it might be pain, it might be trauma, it might be shock, whatever it is. It might be something in our childhood. It, it as Thomas points out, it might even be something ancestral yeah. or collective, and it 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 causes us to kind of numb out, you know, to numb out those parts. And so we don't really feel, so we can't really bring our feel, our presence. And then we get triggered. It's like PTSD. We get triggered by things that happen in daily life. And those things come up often in conflictual situations. And so you find people, you know, negotiation is supposed to be a rational process where you're trying to figure out rationally what makes sense for you, what makes sense for the other, see if you can arrive at a mutually satisfactory solution. And yet, Often what's in the way are emotions. Human beings were, were emotional creatures, and underneath those emotions, at the bottom of it, often is unprocessed trauma. Gosh, there's so many directions to go with this. But with you, you know, looking at negotiating, you know, one of the one of the big, you know, let, let me let me lead off with this. In talking with Thomas, one of the first things that he said. <clears throat> which may be one of the first things that I just felt. I don't know if it's the first thing he said, but the, one of the first things that, that I felt was him talking about, he talked about in the show, he said, okay, when you go, when, I, when we walk into the woods, you and I just talked about that. You're up in Boulder. We're, you know, probably an hour as the crow flies away from each other. So after this, after we talk, we're both going to uh, take our jaunts off into the woods. And he said, you know, when you walk into the woods and perceive nature, if you're standing there, you're part of nature. That sounds so elementary to some degree, but that has continued to stick with me, Bill. I, I don't know why. It's just because I've looked at myself as this separate thing, trying to be a part of it, trying to uh, uh, perceive nature better, maybe, and get more out of it. And he's saying, hey, you're part of it. That alone was such a paradigm shift, I think. And it took me right away to my own propensity to be a me-them perspective in relationships. So here you are being brought in to negotiate, whether it's with yeah, family members in your own house or whether it's over in the Middle East, is do you find yourself doing that a lot, trying to bring these people together? Say, you guys are not, it's not, this is not an us, them. If, if we're going to figure this out, it's a, it's, it's an us, it's not a me, them. That, that's, that's absolutely it. Uh, 
Kevin, it's it's that shift that's so hard for us to to make yes. that, that that movement from me to we, you know. Yes. That journey, <laughs> you know, it's like they say the journey between the the head and the heart is the longest journey in the world. Yeah. You know, between me and we, that's the great journey that we're all called upon to make. You know, we live in this interdependent world, as you mentioned, and whether it's in our families or in our work lives or, you know, in the larger conflicts that I often deal with, that shift from it's us against them, you know, it's, it's two sides. It's us against them. It's, you know, husband against wife. It's a, it's a sales against manufacturing. It's a yeah. labor against yeah. management. It's, you know, Israelis against Palestinians, whatever the situation is, actually, the shift is actually there's all of us together here. Yeah. And how do we jointly, I mean, one of the, the, the secrets of effective negotiation is to take what's so often a face-to-face -face confrontation. You're both sitting on opposite sides, you know, across the table from each other and kind of glaring at each other to you're on the same side of the table. It's an us. How do we deal with the, with these difficulties that we have? And, and the, the problem is on the other side of the table. And how do we attack the problem rather than attack each other? It's interesting as you point out the different. I, I learned, I was probably you know, seventeen, eighteen, waiting tables, and I, I started being a server, and realized real quickly that there's the squabbles between the serving staff and, and the cooks, and, and I'm and thank goodness because of my upbringing and understanding business, it, I was just beside myself like, how on earth can this? We're we're doing the same. We're all paid by the customer. I mean, we're all together. And yet that's the common thing we look at, even as we're on the same team. And yet, why is that? I tend to look at it as an American thing. And Thomas talks about that, the aspect of being dependent or independent. We're independent. But I assume that you experience that on a global level, that at some point we all have some bit of a sword that we wield that touts our dependence to our demise. Yes. Yeah, I mean, there's a there are these stages, and I remember when you were talking with Thomas. You know, you go from you know we start off in life we're dependent, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, infants are dependent. Yes. Yeah. And then we move and we start to add independence. You know, and you know, a child. You know, I, I've got a I've got a young grandchild who's just moving from dependence to independent. You know, mm -hmm. sorry, you say no. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, when you say no, you're kind of like moving. I, I have my separate tastes. You know, independence, yeah. and then. You move from independence into interdependence, where you know you you have dependence, you have independence, and then you have interdependence, and that's that's the shift that we're always being invited to 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 lean into, is how to how to keep our independence and be interdependent at the same time. They're not opposites. It's like where do we have our autonomy within relationship within community? And I think that's what we're being invited to do here in this country and, and, and around the world right now is, is that journey of learning how to be interdependent. And that's what I found so fascinating about your conversation with Thomas. How do you look at it? I'm just personally, how do you look? Because I, I can't, I don't know if I can define it right now of how to, oh, to like, a, is it a Venn, like a Venn diagram, uh, you know, or an overlap. If I look at, 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 at my independence and my interdependence, do you look at it as trying to erase independence with interdependence or they both have a place? They both have a place. They okay. both have a really important place. Um, you know, one of our basic human needs is autonomy. We yeah. want to have a little bit of control over our lives and over what really matters to us in our circle of concern. And I'm so nodding because I'm happy to hear you say that. I, I do like that. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be open here, but you know, I, yeah. I, I do feel like yeah. I love that. And I want we, that to be okay. It's both. We want yeah. our autonomy and we want our connection. You know, human beings, we love to belong. We want yeah. to be part of things. We want, you know, we love, you know, that, that, that feeling of love of that, that erases the separation. Yeah. And so it's kind of a both hand of how do we balance both in our lives and that's, that's, you know, one of the key, you know, that's, that's the key puzzle we're always trying to kind of noodle on, you know, in, in a marriage, in any kind of relationship, yeah. in a community. And right now, you know, how, how do we, how do we, how do we um, 
foster our independence and at the same time cultivate our interdependence? That's the question. When you're doing that in a negotiation setting and you're trying to get people, you're trying to connect people, you're trying to take the polarization that we tend to do and you're trying to connect them. How do you broach that interdependence? Because I tend, I feel like we probably have so much baggage. Everybody here in this, there's going to be different words and perspectives that they attach onto interdependence. Does that mean that I'm supposed to have some reliance on you or are you merely a possible benefit to me? Those are two different things. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, the truth is, we are interdependent. It's, you know, we're, from the moment we're born, you know, we're, you know, we rely on others and no, you know, as the, as the poem by John Gunn, no man is an island, you know, no yeah. human being yeah. is alone. You can't survive alone in this world. We all need community. So we are interdependent. And how do we, you know, that interdependence, because we are interdependent, in fact, we're increasingly interdependent, you know, in this world right now where, you know, everything is like made elsewhere, done elsewhere. You know, it's it's like, to me, what we often bring to it, sometimes what we bring to it when it comes to conflict is we bring this mindset, we bring this question of, okay, who's going to win? Yeah. <laughs> who's going to win this negotiation? And it's like asking the question of, Who's going to win this marriage? Yeah. If you're asking that question, your marriage is in serious difficulty. And that's the same true of any human relationship. So the real question is, if you approach it as a kind of win-lose contest, inevitably, what because of interdependence, you oftentimes what happens is, is everybody loses. Both sides lose. The family loses. The community yeah. loses. The team, the restaurant loses, you know, and... And so the choice is between, are we all going to lose or can we all benefit? Can we all win in that sense? But win meaning meet some essential needs of ours and, and get what we essentially need. And that's, yeah. that's the quest uh, of negotiation to me in, in, in its highest sense. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital. And Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top-tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to 100 times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and air doctor is just the best air doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to air doctor comes with a 30 day money back guarantee. So if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping, go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code Kevin. And depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off exclusive to podcast customers. You will also receive a free three year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to a I R D O C T O R P R O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. 
Friends, I'm pretty candid about my lack of financial prowess. Money and numbers are fairly Greek to me, so I need a lot of guidance. One of my closest friends is a wildly successful wealth manager, and I'm working on some financial literacy and just continually seeking guidance. So I ask you to check out yahoofinance.com. Nobody knows it all on Yahoo Finance is an incredible resource for the rookies like me or the seasoned investors. You know, before my dad passed away recently, Dave Ramsey and his wife, Sharon, flew down to visit. We all got to spend a day together. And I was at yahoofinance.com just now. I saw multiple news flashes from Dave and other people that you respect. And they were hitting so many of the hottest areas in finance today. So it's a place to get a snapshot of all aspects of your financial interests. And if you have them, your portfolios. I hadn't realized Yahoo Finance is the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. So for your comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One more time. YahooFinance.com. That's the quest uh, of negotiation to me in, in its highest sense. It's interesting that you say that. It reminds me back in the days of just sales training and whatnot. And the, you know, some of the debate between is the customer always right? I mean, sometimes that's not always the case. But on the other side, I was taught well that, you know, if you prove the customer wrong, you both lose. Uh, There's no win there. And I find that, again, even in personal relationships, yeah, if I look at a negotiation to win, I know right off the bat I'm going to lose. So it it forces the coming together. And when we look at trauma, I mean, talk about that again in your negotiations. I'm going to try to overlap uh, as best we can. And I, I think you do it so well. You know, when we're talking about, when you're talking about working with two, two countries, let's say, and, or two individuals, either way that they're, they're both there. And let's say that it is a trauma. Well, let me ask that in a negotiation, how many times in your work would you say I am, you are primarily, are you dealing just with a disagreement, just a differing perspective, or are you generally dealing with a felt trauma on one or both sides? Well, I think everyone, to some extent, has trauma. Yeah. Each each human being, you can't go through life without having some form of it, and so in some way, it influences everything. And and because I deal with the really hard conflicts, you know, whether it's you know families getting in at it, or you know, bitter you know battles in the workplace, or wars, uh, trauma. I'm learning, you know, over time. You start to see trauma and the influence of trauma just about everywhere. I'll give you just an example. Uh, I was working uh, for about seven years. I worked in the country of Colombia. I was an advisor to the president of Colombia who was trying to bring an end to what everyone thought was absolutely impossible, a 50-year civil war where there were hundreds of thousands of deaths. Uh, It claimed 8 million victims. And, you know, the, the trauma in the society. You could just feel it palpably. And and during the negotiation, the president had an idea, which was, I thought, a brilliant idea. It was the first time ever, probably, in any peace negotiation. During the peace negotiations itself, he said, let's bring people who've been victimized by this conflict, let's bring them to testify at the negotiations, to the negotiators, just share their stories of what happened to them, just to kind of make everyone realize what the stakes were here. And actually to begin a process of healing so that they could feel heard because they went to the negotiations that were taking place actually in Cuba and Havana. And, uh, uh, and there was nationwide TV from Colombia, And there were these, you know, uh, groups, I think there are about like six groups of maybe 20 selected, you know, individuals who had, you know, men, women, black, white, every, 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 you know, victims of one side, victims of the other side. And they just told their stories, their human stories. And 
I remember everyone thought this is a crazy idea. This is just going to kind of, you know, bring out all kinds of, it's going to distract people from the negotiation. They're going to call out for vengeance and so on. But guess what? The opposite happened. The, the victims who had experienced the worst said the most important thing now is to make sure other people don't suffer what I've suffered. Wow. And, I, and I'll tell you a story of one of them uh, that really moved the president. It was just, just to give you an example. It was a, a woman who, whose name was Pastora Mina. And she told the story of how one day she was in her house and a man came by. He was badly wounded uh, from the conflict. And she took him in and she nursed him back to health. It took months. She put him in her son's bed and just uh, nursed him back to health. And when he was ready to leave, as he was leaving, he suddenly looked on the wall in the living room and he saw a photograph of her with her son. And she said, is that your son? Is that your son? And she said, yes, why? And he said, oh, please forgive me. Please forgive me. She said, why? Because I was the one who tortured and killed your son. Wow. And please forgive me. And she said, she said, get up. She said, I want to thank you. He said, thank me. She said, yeah, I want to thank you for liberating me from having to hate you for the rest of my life. And, uh, and you know, that's that kind of story. Um, when it's told by someone who experienced it, is healing to her because she feels seen and heard, but it was healing to, to all the people who heard that story. And, and it's that kind of, that's trauma healing. That's when trauma begins slowly to heal, when people feel seen, heard. Um, there's compassionate attention paid to what happened. It's not forgotten. Yeah. And then people can begin to put the past to rest because otherwise you can reach an agreement, but the next thing, you know, the agreement breaks down because underlying it, the, the real conflict, which is trauma driven, hasn't been healed. It's an unreal story. Um, well, that belies even me saying that, that it's unreal. It feels unreal. And when we look at conflicts, when we look at that, you really, you tortured my son and we would depict that 9,999 times out of 10,000 that there would be a, a, a hate, uh, bitterness, that there would be a desire for retribution, vengeance, uh, uh, revenge, uh, those things. And yet you look at it and if we stood back in an unbiased standpoint and go, gosh, what, what, what happened? What's the benefit? Well, here you are. The benefit, you're talking about it right now. You're telling the story right now. That's what came out of it out of what she did, the positive. And if she went the other way, our norm, our human norm often to be um, violently bitter about that, upset about that, angry about that, it would we wouldn't be talking about it today. It produces nothing. And yet, how can we take that into our homes when we feel that offense? How can we do that regardless of the other person too? Because what if the guy, you know, wasn't as contrite as that? It's still she still had the opportunity to respond in a different way. But yeah, it feels it feels unreal. It, it does. It calls us. I mean, gosh, it's hard not to get spiritual to be supernatural. I mean, this is the Bible to be have peace beyond all understanding. That's that was what you just said right there. Is is somewhat well? It shouldn't be beyond all understanding. You understand that. You, you this is what you teach and what you you the, the ripple effects of the positive outcome are, 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 are infinite. And yet we often go the other way and it's just a roadblock. Yes. That's, that's, that's it, Kevin. It's, uh, um, you know, just one human being making one step, one courageous step like she did. And, you know, I heard many stories like that. I mean, maybe not quite as dramatic, but like, I remember one fellow who his entire family had been killed by a bomb that the guerrillas had put in a church that pe the people in the village had taken refuge in the church and the and the and a, and a rocket had hit it and i don't know if it was by accident or not but like more than 100 people were killed and on, just in a, in a little village and so many wounded and uh and he lost his whole family he was young too i think he was you know 
It was a boy. And, and he got up and said, I, uh, you know, nothing's going to bring them back, but I want to, uh, I forgive the people who did it. And when he did that, he speaks to the entire people and says, okay, we've got to, we've, we, we have to find a way to, to, to move on. And, and, uh, and it's not, it's, it maybe these are, I mean, these are ordinary human beings who are just kind of like do extraordinary things. And yet each one of them helps the collective and, yeah. That's what's needed because in this world, um, you know, conflict resolution is not just about negotiation. It's about healing. And I think that's the message that, that Thomas brings in his work is how do we heal? How do we heal individually? How do we heal relationally? And how do we heal collectively? Because when you look at negotiation, I would tend to think that the current, the common perception is you negotiate, you're looking for equitable terms. You're just looking for, I mean, my gosh, I've been in some recently and I'm thinking about a, a, a bit of a conflict, you know, a contract, a business thing and sure, whatnot. Sure. And you're looking for equitable, equitable terms. When have we ever sought to truly understand each other? Well, I don't know if that's been at the top of the list. And so when you, when you look at that, you, when you're coming to the table to help negotiations, again, whether it's uh, countries or, or individuals at the, the home table, how often do you find your, or do you always, that, that's what you're doing. Now we're not looking for equitable terms. We're looking to understand. We're looking for empathy. Is that always the case? Well, uh, maybe not always the case, but more often the case than not, I would say in so much of it, you know, if I had to say there's, you know, people often ask me, so as a negotiator, what's the most important skill you need? And the one that comes up the most for me is it's the ability to put yourself in the shoes of the other person <laughs> and try to understand what they, how they see the situation, what they want and what they need. And the reason is because in negotiation, we're trying to influence the other side. We're trying to, you know, maybe change their mind. How can we possibly change their mind if we don't know where their mind is yeah. and where their heart is and what they really care about and what drives them? You know, it goes back to your thing. What drives you? Yeah. That's really what negotiation is all about is to get, you know, it's like an iceberg. You only see on the surface what's at the top, but what's underneath that you can't see? What are the underlying interests and needs and fears and concerns that drive people? I find in negotiation that if we can do that, if we can understand what really drives the other side by listening to them, and that's the key, you know, that's the, that's the key behavior we need in negotiation. It's less about talking than about listening. We can listen for what drives them and articulate what drives us. Then we can often find solutions that are unexpected that actually leave us both happy and, and everyone around us happy. Okay. So on that, you mentioned, you mentioned changing someone's mind. So again, we're looking at the negotiation table and you've got two countries on either side or two people, whatever it is that I would venture to say, I'm, I'm thinking of my own experience. So you're often, you know, of course you'd love the other person to change their mind and just see everything your way. I mean, how, you know, that'd be easy. That's obviously not what's happening or we wouldn't be across the table from each other. In your negotiations, how often do you find, oh, we kind of get things out there and one side sees the light. They see it differently and they come over here. Or how often is that? I, I mean, if you can give it, I don't know if it's fair to ask a ratio, a percentage of how often that happens. Or is it, no, neither of them really changed, but they did understand. And from that, we were able to come to some terms that were fair to both sides. More often than not. Okay. <laughs> and I just let, let me give you an example. You're talking about countries. You know, uh, when I was starting off as a, just in the beginning, there was, a, I had a little mini, little tiny role in, uh, in a peace summit that took place, Camp David, 1978. President Jimmy Carter brought together uh, Egypt, the leader of Egypt, Anwar Sadat, and the leader of Israel, Menachem Begin. And Egypt and Israel had fought four wars in the previous 30 years. I mean, they were arch enemies. And he was hoping this was a last-ditch effort to try to see if 
there could be a, some kind of peace agreement. He brought them to Camp David, which is a place in the forest. You know, it's kind of the woods. You know, bring them out to the woods. And uh, and I was actually it was Rosalind's idea to to kind of bring them to a place of nature. You know, where they can kind of like relax. That you know, their yep. nervous systems can relax. Yeah. And and Egypt wanted, you know the whole Sinai back. They wanted the entire Sinai back. You know, that was their position. And Israel was insisting on keeping a third of it. And, you know, and it was there was no way that they could actually reach an agreement. Yeah. The key, the secret to reaching the agreement was to was for the Americans to ask the Egyptians, why do you want sovereign? What why do you want the Sinai back? What 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 what's the driver there? What do you really want? And for the Egyptians, it turned out to be sovereignty. The, the land had been there since the time of the pharaohs. They wanted it back. You know, it was sovereignty. It was like they, they, they wanted that. And what was it for the Israelis? It was security. That's why they wanted to keep a third of it, right? Yeah. It was security. Once you got beneath the level of where the line in the sand would be in the desert to what were the drivers, security yeah. and sovereignty, <clears throat> they were able to come up with a creative idea, which was – a demilitarized Sinai, a Sinai where, you know, the Egyptian flag could fly everywhere. They got total sovereignty. They got the whole thing back, but Egyptian tanks could go nowhere. So it was brilliant. It gave the Israelis much a bigger buffer than a third, the whole Sinai, and it gave the Egyptians everything that they wanted. So that's what you do. That's the secret of negotiation is to drive behind the positions, the things that people say they want, like, where the line is going to be, yeah. to what what really drives them, what really motivates them, what's really underneath it, which in this case was security and sovereignty, and they were to come up with a creative solution of a demilitarized Sinai. That's what we need to do, whether yeah. it's in the small or the large. That's the art of negotiation. So getting to the underlying why, which, yeah, of course, for the sake of this show, the drive, what is that core drive? And how often are we, again, at the veritable table together and we're not even talking about the real issue. I mean, again, I feel like I keep asking for stats because I'm so curious on that. Like how often do we come, do you get brought to the table? Here you are flown in from wherever or doing whatever. And and the, do you just expect that right off the bat? Okay, we're going to sit down and you're uh, you're an investigator at, at this at this point. You're a private investigator. Try, you're a detective trying to figure out, okay, you guys say what you want. You say what you want. And you know right off the bat, that's probably not it most yeah. of the time. Most of the time, by far the majority of the time, to give you, <laughs> and and uh, and you're absolutely right about being an investigator. You come in with an open mind, an open heart, even better, and uh, you come in curious. You know, you meet yeah. animosity with curiosity. I mean, that's the key. You're just curious. You just ask questions, and you know, negotiation. Even though we think of it as making statements, it's a lot more about asking questions asking good questions like you're asking right now, like you ask on your podcast, open-ended questions. How would you do this? You know, I understand that you won't agree under these conditions. Are there conditions under which you might possibly agree? You know, why hmm. do you want that? Why is that important to you? What if we were to do it this way? You know, those kinds of questions open up the conversation and often lead these kind of polarized positions where we're just tussling with each other into an open-ended inquiry into what can satisfy what drives you and what can satisfy what drives me. It makes me think of the, so here we are in a conflict, which often both people are, they're triggered or they're striving not to be either way, but it's, it's on the cusp. It's there. And we have that perspective, which I've never, I've never really appreciated the concept of being the bigger person. Nobody wants to, that feels, uh, you know, egotistical and, and superior and whatever, but you just got me thinking of, can I just be the more curious person or can I just be there a curious, let's even take that. Can I just be a curious person? Let's not say more. I'd put it. Can I just <laughs> enter in and not be a triggered person, not be a victim, not be able to put a lot of terms there, but can I just be a curious person. If I was forced to say, Kevin, for the first five responses, you are not allowed with your wife, your kid, your partner, your you know business, you're not allowed to state anything. You have to ask a question, which for me, it should be easy. Kevin, treat it all like a podcast. You only ask questions for the most part. I mean, that's in essence, what you're saying now, that's some of the secret sauce. Yes. 
That that that's absolutely it. Uh, you just, I mean, you don't have to have all the answers. You just uh, come with some very good questions, and those questions will lead you uh, in the direction of opening up the situation. And then pretty soon, this is what I find. I mean, I find so many situations where it absolutely seems impossible to everyone. But if you just kind of, let's back off a little bit, you know, let's go to, I, I like to use that phrase, go to the balcony, you know, kind yeah. of like, it's like you're on a stage, you know, kind of get a little bit of that bigger picture, a little bit of detachment, a little bit of perspective. And then let's just see what's there. And, and often as not, uh, things open up, possibilities open up that you couldn't have imagined. That's why, you know, when people ask me, am I an optimist, am I a pessimist? I say, I'm actually a possibilist. You know, yeah. I believe in possibilities. And that's what you're looking for is, you, you know, you don't have to have a certain answer, just looking for where the possibilities are, even in the most challenging of situations. You, you, know, you don't have to have a certain answer, just looking for where the possibilities are, even in the most challenging of situations. Okay. And this is where, again, I'm normally doing this with a past guest. You just heard some stuff uh, about the balcony and being conflict, talking about emotion. You're going to hear that, folks. When this publishes, uh, give it a couple of weeks. We're going to dive into that further uh, when I have the series with uh, with Bill. On, and we're talking about conflict and, and resolution there and negotiating and, and whatnot. But in this, I mean, coming back to trauma and you said as i was questioning that you said felt trauma i i'm going to assume that at the at the negotiation table you are trying to help both sides understand have some understanding of the others felt trauma even if they don't agree and i hear this a lot i mean i've heard this in therapy and i i get it intellectually it is still hard for me for my heart to step in there to go okay i'm hearing your perception of the trauma in this case let's say it's you know caused by me you feel it's caused by me and it's it, it tears me up it's the last thing i want to do is for somebody to feel like i caused them trauma uh and I, of course i want to be defensive that's not what i meant that's not what i did or whatever and yet over here, it's what they felt. What they felt is what they felt. So if I can stop, come back again and be curious and go, okay, okay. As much as that levels me to hear that, tell me more. Help me understand more. Is this key negotiation? That's it. No, you're, 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 you're onto it. It's not easy. This, you know, I would say just, let's just start off by being honest here. This can be some of the hardest work human beings can do. Yeah, It's not easy to do this. It's not easy to hear things you don't want to hear. Yeah. It's, you know, it's not easy to set aside your own defensiveness. You know, I, I do the same thing. I, you know, believe me, I'm going through the same things all the time and I've been doing this for, for years. I'm always learning, you know, it's, you know, I, I you know, always learning the, the basic lessons of, okay, pause, <laughs> bite your tongue, yeah. listen. Try to empathize. It's this is hard work, but the 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 good news is that these are all human potentials. Yeah. You know, we're all built. You know, we have mirror neurons. We're built with the ability to empathize. To to you know what what Thomas talks about attunement. You know, attuned. Yeah. You know, we're we're we have nervous systems, and this is what I love about his work is that we we can attune. In other words, feel in my nervous system can kind of if I really listen to it can feel your nervous system. You know, uh, you know, I can feel a little, if I pay attention to my body, this is what I've learned from Thomas, you know, I can sort of, oh, there's a little bit of tension here. Where is that from? You know, or I pick up on a little bit of tension, we're, st we're stressed, or are we open? And it's just to notice that. It's not to judge it, it's just to notice it. And that's one, one thing I love about his work too, is trauma is not something, um, it's not something to be ashamed of. Uh, it's not something to cover up. It's uh, it's it's what he explains. It's it's the intelligent response of a child or of a human being to overwhelm. It's like a computer when you, when the computer gets too much information, it shuts down. Yeah. That's that's what happens with trauma, and and we all go through that at some point or another. Um, and uh, and it's just okay. And what heals that? What heals that is non-judgmental compassionate attention that we pay to ourselves or that others pay to us it's that deep listening it's that attunement it's that 
I hear you. I see you. You know, I love the story. <laughs> I love the story of how he, you know, with his daughter, you know, his little daughter, she's scared, you know, the father, you know, I, I remember this guy, I have a daughter too. It's like, you want to fix things. No, just listen to the child. Take the child, take your daughter into your arms. Just don't, don't say you shouldn't be scared, you know, <laughs> you know, because just acknowledge what she's feeling and just that lets it go. That's it passes it through. It's that kind of compassionate attention that I think we all would benefit from practicing. Okay. Let me, let me ask you on there and getting, yeah, real and candid, whether when it is a, when a, when a kid, uh, especially, you know, has a, a problem, something happened for me to connect and have empathy, to have uh, compassion for something that they encountered out here with a friend or at school or a, you know, whatever it may be at the workplace or whatnot is not that difficult. It's very, and I can step into this place much easier when, however, that person, their trauma is directed at me which is what you're doing when you're sitting across the table again from, you know, two countries at war or possible war where they are throwing accusations at each other. So to take that ability, take an, let's give me that focus on an accusation, how you facilitate that empathy, connectedness, compassion, when you have accusation. So here's, you know, uh, uh, nation B over here and you're sitting there and they accuse nation A and you're saying nation A, you, you need to understand this. And nation A is going, dude, I am not accepting that accusation over here or that, you know, I don't want to. That's when it feels like, okay, th- th- this is the, this is the difficult side over here. If something happened to you and you're relating what happened to you at work and didn't have to do with me, man, I can step in there when it's me. That's yeah. well, I've been in therapy yeah. for that one. Yeah, no, yeah, believe me, I, I I know that place. You know, I'll just yeah. give you one one example. Many years ago, I was mediating, I was facilitating a conversation between the uh, some of the top leadership of Russia and the top leadership of Chechnya, which was fighting in a war of independence against Russia and had been fighting, you know, over the generations for many generations. And uh, and the war was hot and heavy, and thousands of people were dying. And we were meeting in the Hague. And uh, in the Peace Palace there, and the vice president began, uh, we happened to be meeting in the same room where the war crimes tribunal was taking place for Yugoslavia at the time. And the, the conversation began with the vice president of Chechnya pointing his finger at the Russian national security advisor and saying, you should stay right here in this room because you're going to be on trial for war crimes. And he just went on with a whole litany of accusations, yeah. like you were saying. And he went into the whole history of all the suffering of the people of, of Chechnya at the hands of the Russians over centuries. I mean, it went on the conversation, you know, went on for at least an hour and he was just furious. And then, you know, you could just see so much trauma there. And, and uh, then he turned to me in that hot stuffy room and he pointed his finger at me and said, you're an American and you Americans are supporting the Russians. And by the way, you're oppressing the people of Puerto Rico. And tell me, what do you think of Puerto Rico? And he, <laughs> suddenly I'm on the spot. You know, I was the facilitator, but I'm on the spot. And, you know, uh, and I was, you know, it had been a long day. It was hot. And whatever. I was thinking, what do I know about Puerto Rico? And, and then I realized, oh, it's not about Puerto Rico. And so I, I paused for a moment. And pausing is one of the best things you can do in a negotiation. It's just, you know, just... A little moment of silence can help. And I kind of, and I, I had the kind of, you know, what's translated. So I had a little bit of chance to pause. And I turned to him and I said, you know, uh, Mr. Vice President, first of all, let me say we are all, you know, I mean, the suffering of the, of the Chechen people yeah. over the centuries is palpable. And right now I, I hear that. I hear, I hear that, you know, and, you know, and I, I, you know, I could, you know, we, we all feel that right now here in the room. And we, the question is, how do we stop the suffering? Yeah. And I take your, your criticism of my country um, as a sign that we're among friends and we can talk candidly to each other. And right now we need to turn the conversation back to how do we stop this war? Well, uh, the conversation shifted uh, back to, you know, <laughs> back to, how do we get a ceasefire, which we ultimately, you know, succeeded in doing, but it was like, it was those moments when the accusations are flying back and forth, the ability to pause for a moment, take a moment of silence, 
try to remember what it's all about. And then, you know, we're, you know, you're, you're criticizing me. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to interpret that as a sign that we're among friends and we can speak candidly to each other. That was kind of the little reframe that helped get the conversation back on track. You know, I'm curious on this note too, uh, Bill with, I had a therapist do this uh, once and they said, I, I can't, and I can't remember, I should, but I can't remember the, the incident, but it was something where I felt like I, there's, I didn't participate. I didn't cause that. I'm not responsible for this you know, person's behavior or, or the response. And she said, now, wait a minute. I want you to think about how, how did you, you had a part It the kind of the takes, takes two to tango. You had a part. How did you set this up? How did your, um, even your your non-participation, non-engagement, how did that set it up? And I think that's what it was. That's what it was. It was something where I didn't engage. She said that yeah. by proxy caused this response. You still had a part. So even where I thought that I was not, you still had a part. And that, that uh, I play that in my head a lot when I you know feel something. How did I participate? How did I set it up? I wouldn't be, and I kind of have just taken the, the, the aspect of, I wouldn't be here. In this conflict, there would not be any negotiation unless I had done something or hadn't done something. Yeah. Um, that's it. Okay. And that's that's the key. I mean, the thing is, the problem in in conflict is the blame game, right? That's what we're talking about. You know, each side blaming the other, right? What you were doing and what the therapist was suggesting is you change the game to from the blame game to the responsibility game. Responsibility doesn't mean blame. It's not the, you're not, not even at fault, but the truth is responsibility means the ability to respond. The, that, that you are, since you're part of the relationship, you co-created the situation. Yeah. Even if it's just a tiny little bit, Co-created. you know, I, I've had to learn this lesson so many times myself. We don't want to, uh, you know, but it's not about blame. It's just about responsibility. And when you take responsibility, which is the ability to respond, you are empowering yourself because if you have, you have the power then to change the situation. And so there's this this shift of between blame and responsibility. They're two very different things. You don't need the pointing finger. It's just like, no, of course I I'm responsible for the things that happen around me, I, I, I play some role. Even if I said nothing, I'm playing a little bit of a role. I'm co-creating the situation. And that shift, that reframe from blame to responsibility is the shift that we need to transform the conflict. Okay. I, I can't hear you say that without bringing, I'm going to steal from our upcoming conversation. So folks, you're going to hear this again, and I'm just going to assume that you need to, like I do as well. So this is out, this is from me talking with you uh, a few weeks ago. And I don't know if you said this, I think it might be out of your book. It was the, um, yeah, it was, it was, gosh, it was what got you started in your profession. And it was uh, how to tell if negotiations are going poorly or well. And your response uh, in your youth even uh, here was, oh, gosh, if it's going poorly, I usually see to what you just said, blame, they're mired in the past. They're focusing on what's wrong. If it's going well, they're not talking about the past, uh, but they're talking about the present and the future. Instead of focusing on what's wrong, they're focusing on what can be done. Instead of attacking each other, they're attacking the problem jointly. Uh, that's... I want to say, I don't know how I want to frame that. I mean, that's, that's maturity. That's the, you know, it's both of you being the bigger person is there, but now, I mean, you've gotten me ever since I read that, I'm thinking, okay, now every time I look at a conflict or, or start to get riled up or triggered, I'm going, okay, how is this going to go? Well, if I blame, if I talk about the past, I mean, that's got to be the number one. I mean, in therapy overall, especially like a couples therapy or family therapy, relational therapy, it's been, when you start talking about the past, you're pretty much in trouble. And yet when I, when we look at that, like some of those, even the examples that you've talked about, I mean, there is a place to, to cite the past, but not blame. Right. Right. For sure. No, you want to talk about, you, you could talk about the past insofar as the past is part of the present. And there's something to be, if it's, if you have the intention to heal it, but if it's the intention to go back and settle who's right, who's wrong, you know, you're, you're all, and who's the blame. You know, that, that, that's a game that never ends. Goodness. Okay. Well, you, you know, this, I mean, when you look at, I mean, we look at, let me, let me come back and ask that. You looking at negotiation, Thomas, and you're talking about conflict. He's over here on, you know, trauma. 
Um, again, I, I want to feel, and as, as most people are, are listening to this, they're not dealing with you know, global conflicts or, or, or nations against nation. They're talking about their individual lives or maybe at work and whatnot. They're looking there and to realize how much of the time when they're sitting there and they think they're trying again to negotiate some terms, they need to look at, look, what is the felt trauma, um, you're saying that word, you said that a minute ago, that it shouldn't be, we shouldn't be ashamed of that word. I'll admit to you, Bill, I do still struggle even with speaking to it that way. Cause when I look, talk about business and you get people negotiating, they're not thinking about trauma. And if you bring up that word, they're going to go, wait a minute, this isn't trauma. We're just trying to find something (laughs) equitable here. How do we do justice to it? I'm not saying it's always going to be Trauma is the most relevant well, thing, like in, in, a, in a, like a business transaction, but particularly like in in a family situation, often in a business in a family business situation, you know, things get elicited from the past, and and trauma is this kind of area under the bottom that can influence things, and it's just good to know about it. It's, it's why you know it's it's a it's a it's a lifelong uh, practice of like. The, the key thing I would say, you know, in in a business negotiation, whatever, that that is relevant here is listening. Yeah. You know, if you listen to them, if, you know, even forget about trauma, but just listen to them, hear what drives them, hear what they're afraid of. You know, all those things may be in a deep psychic sense related to trauma, but it doesn't matter. Just listen to them, hear where they're coming from. That will convey respect. Yeah. Respect is the cheapest concession you can make in a negotiation. It costs you nothing, but it means everything to the other side, of course. Uh, And it also gives you valuable information about what they want so that you can then have a much better chance of arriving at a solution that is equitable, as you say. Okay. I just wrote that down. Respect is the cheapest concession. Um, Gosh, that that even brings me back to some of the early parenting counsel that we got that you can give a child a reprimand you can discipline even and you can do it with anger and 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 frustration and all these negative emotions or you can do it over here and do it in respect there's still a consequence there still may be a a, a something that's you know that's very um distasteful to the child that you can do but you can still do it with well love and respect uh to that degree and for you to bring that forward here it calls us all up to take a deep breath and you know at the at the uh, i don't know what doesn't come down to this so often in every show that i do this aspect of being aware we've got to be aware to your standpoint which folks you're going to hear this in, a, in two or three weeks as we talk about it of take a minute get on the balcony assess what's going on and not just react, which is, is maybe that's like you said, this is one of the hardest things ever. I appreciate you saying that, that this is not, I mean, we talk about this, you've got a book about this. Thomas has a book. We're talking about these issues, but this right here may be the hardest journey uh, that we can ever go on. And yet maybe the most beneficial ever as you've experienced. Yeah. That's it, Kevin. Uh, That's, I mean, this is all, I just want to say, how about possibilist? This is all our yeah. human potential. It's not rocket science. It's the things that you already know, yeah. but you need to just develop. And if we can do that, we can. if we can do these things, we can take our conflicts, we can turn them around, we can transform them into positive, constructive solutions, vibrant relationships. And if we can transform our conflicts, we can transform our lives, and then we can transform the world. And that's really what it's all about. Well, I can't top that there. That's a great place to anchor right there. I do want to thank, again, Thomas Hubel is our muse here for this series. His book is Attuned, Practicing Interdependence to Heal Our Trauma and Our World. I am right now with William Urey and his upcoming book. Again, you can pre-order it now. It'll be out uh, when this this, uh, episode comes out. I think, uh, gosh, it'll be right at the beginning of February. And you said the book comes out February twenty one. 20, 20, so 20. 20. So you get, but you can pre-order it now. And if you go there, you can see the stats. People are already doing that quite a bit, but that book is called 
possible, how we survive and thrive in an age of conflict. And then if the book's coming out February 20, it's probably right around when our series is going to come out uh, dealing with talking about conflict and going deeper with you. Uh, Man, thank you so much for being here again. Is there any other specific place that you would have people connect with you other than obviously going to check out the book? Well, if they want, I have a website. It's just my name, uh, William Uri, U-R-Y.com. Okay. Um, For sure. There's some resources there for people. Well, thank you. And folks, if you want to comment on this, go to uh, Spotify, go to Apple Podcasts, leave a review and and tell what you learned from this show that we did together. You can find us on uh, the clips and everything on social media, kevinmiller.co. And uh, this is all about how it affects your drive. You can check out my book, What Drives You on Amazon. Until next time, friends, stay driven. Yeah.